0: Welcome to Explorers. Today we will wrap up the life and travels and adventures of Alvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. So let's get right to it. Last time we left Cabeza de Vaca in Texas, a free man. He and three other survivors from the ill-fated Narvaez expedition had just escaped from the native Indians where they had been held as slaves. It was September of 1534, nearly six years since the roughly 240 Spaniards had been stranded along the coast of Texas. Life had been hard on the Europeans. Many had died at the hands of the natives, but starvation had been the biggest issue, with some of the men turning to cannibalism to survive. Cabeza de Vaca had endured by becoming a trader, going from tribe to tribe in the area around what is modern-day Galveston, Texas. He had also taken up the healing art of blowing, becoming a sort of medicine man. But Cabeza de Vaca was determined to return home, and in 1533 he had set out southwest down the Texas Gulf Coast, aiming to reach Spanish-controlled territory. But before long, Cabeza de Vaca would come upon three survivors from the Narvaez expedition, all of them now slaves with the various Indian tribes in the area. The four men would plot their escape together, and they would make their move in September of 1534. So Cabeza de Vaca and his three companions were free, and what they would do next would become one of the great journeys of exploration in history. So, before we set out on our big adventure, I want to touch base with the three men who would accompany Cabeza de Vaca on his upcoming journey. I've told you a bit about each person, but I think a little more background is in order, since these four men's lives would ultimately become so intertwined. The first man was Andres Durantes, also known as Andres Durantes de Carranza. He was born around 1500 in Spain, which would have put him about at the age of 34 or 35 at the time of our tale. He had come from a poor family, and he had joined the Narvaez expedition to enrich himself. The Moorish slave, Estevanico, who was also one of the four survivors, was Durante's slave. Durantes, along with Alonso del Castillo, another of the survivors, had been given command of one of the five rafts that had sailed from Florida to Texas. Cabeza de Vaca refers to him as a captain, meaning he was likely an officer in the small army that had traipsed through Florida back in 1528. The other Spaniard to survive along with Cabeza de Vaca and Durantes was Alonso del Castillo, also known as Alonso del Castillo Maldonado. I couldn't find his age, but it's likely he was a relatively young man between the ages of 30 and 40. Like Durantes, Castillo had come from a poor family, and he had joined the Narvaez expedition to make some cash. The third survivor was a man named Estevanico. He's also known as Esteban de Durantes, Estebanico, and Esteban the Moor. But for our story, he is Estevanico. Estevanico had been born around 1500 in northwest Africa. He had been sold into slavery in 1522 in the Portuguese-controlled Berber town of Azin on Morocco's Atlantic coast. He would ultimately be sold to Durantes, who would bring Estevanico with him on the Narvaez expedition. So, those men, along with Cabeza de Vaca, represented the last surviving contingent from the Narvaez expedition. It's important to remember that these four men had survived six years in the wild, first in Florida, then in Texas. To have made it this far as slaves likely meant that these were hard and tough, not to mention resourceful men. As they took flight from their captors in September of 1534, The four would have looked like the runaway slaves that they were. They were almost naked, gaunt and lean, and their skin would have been rough from constant exposure. And it's not hard to imagine them with scraggly beards and long hair. So Cabeza de Vaca, Castillo, Durantes, and Estevanico were free from their Indian captors. Their initial plan was to head down the Gulf Coast. That, of course, was easier said than done. There were Spanish outposts to the south, but they were hundreds of miles away, and as we have seen, the coast was heavily populated and the natives were not always friendly. The four Spaniards would elect to find a safe haven to ready themselves for their journey. For that, they attached themselves to a different Indian tribe, the Avavares. The Avavares, unlike their previous hosts, the Miriamis, would treat the Spaniards kindly. It seems that the Avavares, as well as the other tribes in the region, had heard about Cabeza de Vaca and his mysterious healing powers. Thus, the Spaniards held a special place of status amongst the natives. Now, another thing that Cabeza de Vaca realized was that trying to strike out into the wild in September and October was a risky move since winter was on the horizon. He knew that having enough food would be the greatest challenge for them, even more so than illness and hostile natives. Traveling in the winter was dangerous because many of the foods found in the region were not in season. There would be no pears or blackberries or oyster or whatever for many months. The lands would become desolate during these winter months, even the animals moving away to more hospitable environments. So Cabeza de Vaca and his three companions would elect to spend the winter with the Avavaris. It would allow them to recuperate and just as important plot their next move. As noted, the Avaveris would treat the men well. During this time, Indians would come and visit, requesting healing for various ailments, and they would bring gifts to the Spanish, including venison and pears. But even with their newfound freedoms and the safety of a friendly environment, life was difficult during the time with the Avavaris. There was no corn or nuts or acorns or fish except for what had been stored up for the winter. Cabeza de Baca said the entire tribe could go days without food. Still, the four men survived, and they prepared to take their leave in the spring. With that in mind, it is here that the Spanish began to realize just how daunting of a task it was to travel south. The natives that they encountered that winter informed them that going down the coast was a perilous journey. There were simply too many tribes that were hostile to outsiders. It would be a death trip. In fact, one tribe, the Camones, had slaughtered all the men on one of the boats when they had come ashore in their territory back in 1528. So Cabeza de Vaca and his three companions decided to try a different route. They would go west toward the Pacific Ocean. While they knew it was a longer trek, they decided it would be safer than heading south. So with their plan in place, Cabeza de Vaca and his men set out in the spring of 1535, after eight months with the Alvaveres. Soon they would reach the Rio Grande, The four would cross the river and eventually swing northwest. It's important to understand that we don't know the exact route of Cabeza de Vaca's journey. Historians have recreated it as best as they can from his descriptions, but do know that there is some guesswork involved, and sometimes we do have conflicting opinions. You can see a map of his likely route at ExplorersPodcast.com. I recommend taking a look at it just to understand this podcast a little better. The Spaniard's journey west was not an easy one. Villages were few and far between and the trails often disappeared in the sparsely populated lands, especially as they pushed further inland. Cabeza de Vaca and his companions could go days without food. In fact, hunger was a way of life for many of these people, and not just the Spaniards. Also, there was simple exposure to deal with. Frigid cold in the winter and brutal heat in the summer, the Spaniards were basically naked, living with and like the tribes they encountered. Cabeza de Vaca said that he would shed his skin twice a year because of his exposure to the sun. Another issue was the warfare that often existed between the tribes they encountered. Cabeza de Vaca said that the various tribes were constantly in conflict. He reported one incident where he was with a tribe called the Doguenes. They were attacked one night by their enemies, and three men from the tribe were killed and many wounded in the fighting. The Doguenes responded to the attack by going on the offensive that very night. They chased their enemies and stealthily approached their campsite. At dawn, they attacked. They would kill five men and drive the rest away. It was a constant back and forth that occupied many of the tribes. He said the Indians could be immensely cruel and vicious when they desired, and it was not uncommon for the natives to sleep next to their bows. Still, as the four men moved west, they found the natives to be mostly friendly to them. Like when Cabeza de Vaca had been a trader amongst the Indians in Texas, the outsider status of the Spaniards, plus their healing skills, made them non-threatening. Instead, word spread to the other tribes about the Spanish healers, and the tribes they came upon would welcome the strange white men with the great powers. Cabeza de Vaca said that he and Castillo were the ones who did most of the healing, perhaps because they had a flair for it that inspired the natives. So, as the Spaniards moved west, the fame of their healing skills spread. Cabeza de Vaca said that they would arrive in a village, and people would swarm around to see them, and they would want to touch him and the other Spaniards, each looking for a blessing or some relief from a pain or an illness then there would usually be a celebration. So respected he and the other men would become, he said that it was common for men and women to travel with the Spaniards from one village to the next, a sort of wandering entourage. And thus Cabeza de Vaca and his three Spaniard comrades fell into a sort of routine when they came to a new village. The residents would give gifts to Cabeza de Vaca and his comrades, who in turn would pass those gifts on to the men and women who had come with them from the previous village. Those people would then head home with all sorts of cool new stuff, and the process would repeat itself at the next village. Again, all of this was because of the reputation that Cabeza de Vaca and his men had developed as faith healers. And with regard to his healing skills, Cabeza de Vaca reports that there were many times where natives came to him with sick people, only to see them get better after his administrations. Once he even told of an Indian who had died, but would end up rising the next day after Cabeza de Vaca had prayed over him. As you can see, these parts of Cabeza de Vaca's tale bring into play a quasi-mystical Christian element, with Cabeza de Vaca taking on an almost saintly quality and inferring that the religion that he brought to the natives was actually physically affecting them. Others have pointed to a placebo effect, with the natives thinking that they should get better because they have received some sort of mystical blessing or healing. No matter, Cabeza de Vaca's turn as a faith healer seems to have sustained him during these difficult times. And I think it's important to talk a moment about Cabeza de Vaca and his faith. It is during these years that he seems to have become an intensely religious man. Perhaps it had always been there, but it really emerged during these times. His faith would be the rock he leaned against, no matter how difficult things got. During his faith healings, he would not only incorporate Christian symbols and prayers into the rituals he performed, but he would also begin to actively spread the word of Christ to the native peoples. He called himself, and those who followed Jesus, the children of the Son. I also find it interesting that Cabeza de Vaca's attitudes toward religion and faith that emerged during this time were rooted in kindness and decency. Perhaps it was his circumstances. To preach fire and brimstone would have been ludicrous in his situation. It's not as if he could force the natives to follow his faith. Instead, he introduced them to Christianity through healing, life instead of death. It is an admirable thing, and it's a different tact that many people at this time took toward the natives. Example, in 1512, the powerful Spanish bishop Juan Rodriguez de Fonseca, when told that 7,000 native children had been slaughtered in Cuba, was reported to have said, What do I care and what does the king care? It's almost impossible to believe that Cabeza de Vaca would have held such an attitude. In fact, we will see his sympathies for the natives of the Americas will cause him some troubles, but we will discuss that later in the podcast. One related story I want to pass on about Cabeza de Vaca and his healing was the time a man was brought to him with a severe chest pain. Sometime before, the man had been shot in the chest, just above the heart, by an arrow. The man had obviously survived the wound, but the injury caused him constant pain. After careful examination, Cabeza de Vaca realized that the arrowhead was still in the man's chest, as I said, right above the heart. Cabeza de Vaca used a knife and, after a difficult operation, extracted the arrowhead, which was made of deer bone. He then stitched the wound and halted the bleeding. Cabeza de Vaca gave the Indians the bloody arrowhead, and it was shown to the entire village, and even taken to other villages to show off. Of the surgery, Cabeza de Vaca wrote, As this cure gave us such standing throughout the land that they esteemed and valued us to the utmost capacity. The surgery is pretty cool, and it is generally recognized as the first recorded surgical procedure done in what is now the state of Texas. In fact, when a group of surgeons organized the Texas Surgical Society in 1915, they adopted Cabeza de Vaca as the patron saint of the group due to his historic operation. I mention all of this because we should take into consideration that Cabeza de Vaca did not just perform mystical healing. And while he wasn't a doctor, his time in the military, plus his many years alone in the Americas, had likely given him some basic medical skills. It was not uncommon for soldiers to simply take care of each other when it came to stitching up wounds or setting broken bones or whatever things would befall them. And it's likely Cabeza de Vaca brought some of that knowledge to the healing he performed on the native peoples. Anyhow, back to the Spaniards' march west. Well, really, northwest. As you recall, the Spanish had crossed the Rio Grande and taken a northwesterly tact. The reason is that there were mountains directly to the west, and marching into the mountains was something that you just didn't do. Unless, of course, you're Zebulon Pike, in which case you go anywhere you feel like, the consequences be damned. Anyhow, the Spaniards went northwest, basically traveling between the Sierra Madre Oriental mountain range, which would have been on their left, and the Rio Grande on their right. They followed trails from village to village, a necessity for their survival as the villages offered food and shelter. At each village, in addition to all the healing and celebrations that occurred, they would quiz the natives as to what lay ahead, finding out where they would be welcomed, the best routes to take, and where to find food, that sort of thing. Ultimately, Cabeza de Vaca and his companions would come to an area called La Junta de los Rios, a fertile region where the Rio Conchos and the Rio Grande meet, which is at present-day Presidio, Texas, and Ojinaga, Chihuahua. In Cabeza de Vaca's writings, he doesn't give dates very often, but by reading his works, it appears that they would have reached here around the fall of 1535. Since departing the Avivares Indians of the previous spring, The four Spaniards had traveled about 700 miles or so. Those calculations are generally as the crow flies, so the distance was actually probably longer. In reaching La Junta, the four men had effectively rounded the northern tip of the Sierra Madre Oriental mountain range. As with most of the other places they had gone, at La Junta, the Spanish were welcomed by the locals. The land here was the best the Spanish had yet seen. The natives, who were numerous, grew squash and corn and beans. So thrilled at the quantity of food, Cabeza de Vaca said, Quote, this made us the happiest people in the world, and we thanked our Lord heartily for it. He called the people here the cow people because of the great number of buffalo in the vicinity. Cabeza de Vaca and the three men would stay in La Junta for several weeks, no doubt enjoying the abundance of food, a rare luxury for the foursome. Of the locals, he wrote that they were impressive physically, and the homes that they had were permanent, likely Puebloan dwellings common to the region. It was probably the most civilized, and I use the word civilized in air quotes, place that he had been in almost a decade. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly So, after leaving the Junta region, the four men ascended the Rio Grande on the Texas side, before recrossing the Great River about 75 miles downstream of modern-day El Paso. At this point, Cabeza de Vaca wanted to go directly west, into what is the modern-day states of Chihuahua and Sonora in Mexico. But the natives told them that the lands toward the setting sun were bare, and that they would have to travel many days before they would reach another village. They were encouraged to go north, following the buffalo trails, where they could find food and shelter. But Cabeza de Vaca insisted that they go west, despite the dire warnings. The Spanish wanted to reach the South Sea, the Pacific Ocean. So the small party went west. As warned, it would be a difficult journey. The land was rough and dry and barren. The Spanish would go 17 days, traveling hundreds of miles, before finally reaching another village. During this time, their hunger was acute. The only food that they had was what they could carry, and they ended up surviving on deer fat. As they marched west, the men caught sight of tall mountains, the Sierra Madre Occidental mountain range. The Sierra Madre Occidental range goes for roughly 900 miles, running northwest-southeast through northwestern and western Mexico and along the Gulf of California. As they drew closer to the mountains, the land was better and settlements became more common, and these were permanent settlements with stable populations and steady food, primarily corn and beans. It was also during these times that Cabeza de Vaca wrote, about the presence of minerals, such as silver and gold and copper, plus there was turquoise and gems. At one village, he was given five arrowheads made of emeralds. These items, he was told, came from prosperous places in the mountains and to the north. This is something I want to note because Cabeza de Vaca would later tell the Spanish authorities about this wealth, and it would entice the government to mount expeditions into northern Mexico and the American Southwest. Also, it is here that Cabeza de Vaca reported that the natives had coral brought from the South Sea, a sign that they were getting nearer to their destination. As they continued west in December of 1535, the four men were forced to spend two weeks in a village due to the rain swelling the nearby river, which they needed to cross. Here, one of the Spaniards, Castillo, saw a buckle from a sword belt around an Indian's neck with a horseshoe nail sewn into it. When questioned about the buckle, the Indians said, and I'm quoting from Cabeza de Vaca's writings, quote, they replied that it had come from heaven. We questioned them further, asking them who had brought it from there. They told us that some bearded men like us, with horses, lances, and swords, had come there from heaven and gone to the river and speared two Indians. End quote. Cabeza de Vaca and the others were ecstatic at hearing the news. They knew that they were getting closer and closer to their goal. He wrote of the occasion quote, We gave great thanks to God our Lord when we heard this, since we doubted we would ever have news of Christians. End quote. The four men would continue their journey, and eventually they would crest a mountain range and begin to see signs of the Spanish, such as the stakes used to tether their horses. They would follow their trail for days. It's not known exactly when and where Cabeza de Vaca reached the Pacific Ocean. He doesn't record the incident. It may have been that he never actually reached the Pacific. The coast was actually quite barren, and when he emerged on the western side of the mountains, he and his companions maybe stayed inland, because remember, they aren't chasing the ocean, they are chasing the Spanish soldiers. In the end, he probably came out of the mountains somewhere near the Yaqui River. Also, with regard to the soldiers, in a bit of a weird twist, Cabeza de Vaca would find the villages in the area empty as they got nearer and nearer to catching up with the Spanish. It turns out the soldiers were in the area trying to capture slaves. The people had fled, mostly into the mountains, to escape them. Cabeza de Vaca tried to reassure the Indians that were traveling with him and those he came across that he would prevent the Spaniards from taking them as prisoners but it was a difficult task. The Spanish had killed many natives, taking their food, and burned their homes. Because of the reluctance of many of the Indians in their group to follow the Spanish, Cabeza de Vaca would set out with only Estevanico and a few Indians, intent on catching up to his countrymen. Here's how he recorded his efforts. I took the black man and eleven Indians, and, following the trail of the Christians, went by three places where they had slept. That day I traveled ten leagues. The following morning, I caught up with four Christians on horseback who were quite perturbed to see me strangely dressed and in the company of Indians. The four Spanish soldiers were, as you can imagine, astonished to see Cabeza de Vaca, a white man dressed like an Indian. After getting over their shock, the soldiers took Cabeza de Vaca, Estevanico, and the Indians in their company to their commander, Diego de Alcaraz. The Spanish captain then sent some of his men, along with Estevanico as a guide. To fetch the other two Spaniards, Castillo and Durantes. As for Cabeza de Vaca, he remained with the Spanish troop, and he asked the captain to witness the day and manner in which he had returned. The exact date of the meeting isn't actually recorded, at least that I could find, but it appears to have been January of 1536. Cabeza de Vaca was about a hundred miles north of the modern day city of Culiacan, Mexico. So Cabeza de Vaca had finally reached the lands of the Christians. He had departed Cuba in early 1528 from Florida to Texas, and then finally an epic trek across northern Mexico. Ironically, meeting the Spanish troops was not the end of Cabeza de Vaca's journey. As noted, he found the area abandoned, despite the fact that it was fertile, as the natives had fled into the mountains to escape the Spanish slavers. I find it fascinating that Cabeza de Vaca would come back to the very strange reality. He had desired, above all else, to get home to the land of the Christians, and when he got there, he had found them killing and stealing and enslaving the very people who had done so much to get him home. In fact, there were many Indians with Cabeza de Vaca. He wrote upwards of 600 had come with him, despite their fear of the Spanish. He convinced the Indians to give gifts of food and valuables to the soldiers, but even after this, he said, quote, After this, we had many great quarrels with the Christians because they wanted to enslave the Indians we had brought with us, End quote. Again, a harsh reality for Cabeza de Vaca. The people he had come to be so respected by were nothing but slave fodder for his countrymen. Another interesting thing, in his writings, Cabeza de Vaca often refers to the Indians and himself as us, as he had come to identify with the natives after being in their company for so long. For their part, the Indians didn't believe Cabeza de Vaca was like the other Spaniards. He had not wanted to rule over them. He had not wanted to take their food and valuables. What they gave him, he gave in turn to those who had traveled with him. Many didn't want him to leave, but in the end, he would finally convince the Indians that it was time to depart. The Spanish assured Cabeza de Vaca that the Indians would be treated fairly, but who knows how long that lasted. So, leaving his native Indian escort behind, Cabeza de Vaca would head to Culiacan. He and the other three men would stay there until May 15th. Then they would be escorted by 20 horsemen to the town of Compostela. Less than two weeks later, the group would set out for Mexico City, arriving there on July twenty-fourth, 1536. And so Cabeza de Vaca's great journey was over. He and his three companions had made it back from oblivion, traveling together roughly 2,500 miles since leaving Texas the previous year. It had been more than eight years since the four had landed in Florida. For Cabeza de Vaca and the other Spaniards, their return was celebrated wherever they went. People from all walks of life would greet them and offer them praise for their amazing achievements. They were celebrities, their survival recognized for its extraordinary nature. So, the four ragged castaways were home, but life for each would have to go on. And while there is quite a bit to talk about regarding Cabeza de Vaca's life and accomplishments, I want to first run down the other three Spaniards, just to tie up those tales. We will start with Andres Durantes. Durantes was offered a leading position in a new expedition going north, but he would ultimately turn down the offer. He had had enough of wandering the deserts of New Spain. The expedition north would be led instead by Francisco Vazquez de Coronado, which will someday make a great podcast. Instead, Durantes would settle into a comfortable life in New Spain, marrying twice, including once to a wealthy widow. Between his two wives, he would have fourteen children. He would die in 1550, around the age of 50. The other Spaniard, Alonso del Castillo, would, other than a brief trip to Spain in 1541, also remain in Mexico. He would get married and live the rest of his life in the New World, dying sometime in the late 1540s. The final man in our company of travelers was Estevanico, the Moorish slave. Estevanico has an interesting place in American history. As part of the four men who made it back to Mexico City, he is considered by some to be the first black man to explore the United States. But remember, Estebanico was not just black and a Moor; he was a slave, and his owner was one of the other survivors, Andres Durantes. Thus, the man was still a slave. After reaching Mexico City, Durantes would either sell or give Estebanico to Antonio de Mendoza, the viceroy of New Spain. So much for gratitude for helping everyone get back to civilization. Estebanico's fate would ultimately be decided in the lands he had strived to escape from, the American Southwest. Remember, Cabeza de Vaca had told stories of wealth in the north. This helped convince the Spanish to explore the region. Estomenico would be assigned to the Coronado Expedition, and he would head back north as part of an advance group of men, traveling ahead of Coronado and sending reports back to the main column. In 1539, Estomenico entered the village of Hawaku in present-day New Mexico, where the Indians reportedly killed him. Exactly why he was killed is just speculation. One report says that he was killed for demanding valuables from the natives. And there's even a theory that he faked his death to gain his freedom. In the end, we only know that he was dead. Estevanico would have been about 40 years old at the time of his death. One final thing about Estevanico: In 2015, author Leila Lalami wrote a novel titled The Moor's Account, a fictionalized version of the trek of Cabeza de Vaca and his three companions, told from the viewpoint of Estevanico. The critically acclaimed novel gets four stars on Amazon. I have not read it, but it looks like a fascinating take on our story. So that wraps up the lives of the men who had accompanied Cabeza de Vaca on his remarkable 2,500-mile journey. So now, let us look at the life and legacy of Álvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca. Upon reaching Mexico City in July of 1536, Cabeza de Vaca would remain there for two months. I have read some sources that say that Cabeza de Vaca had a difficult time adjusting back to the life of the world of the Spanish. He preferred sleeping on the floor as opposed to a European-style bed, and he found European clothing uncomfortable and constraining. Anyhow, after Mexico City, he would head east to Veracruz, the intention to take a ship to Spain. He wouldn't take passage until April 1537, then he would go to Havana, reaching there on May 4th, and finally then set sail for Spain. It would be an adventurous voyage, as Cabeza de Vaca's ship was chased by a French pirate near the Azores, but he would be saved when the Portuguese navy would chase off the pirate and escort his ship to Lisbon, reaching mainland Europe on August 9, 1537. After Cabeza de Vaca's return to Spain, he had two things on his mind. First, he began to write an account of his journeys in the New World. His account was initially for the King of Spain, but it would be published in 1542, titled La Relacion of Álvar Núñez Cabeza de Vaca, or simply La Relacion. This initial account only covered the time from his shipwreck in November of 1528 to his return to Mexico City. Still, it's an amazing tale and was well-received in Europe. I will touch some more on La Relacion a little later, but I want to keep going with Cabeza de Baca's life story. The man's second goal was to figure out how to return to the New World. It is said that he lobbied to be the head of the next expedition that was planned to go to Florida. But that gig already had a leader, Hernando de Soto. Cabeza de Vaca was offered the role in the expedition, but he turned it down, not wanting to play second fiddle to an inexperienced conquistador yet again. It is also said that he was interested in returning to the lands of northern Mexico, as he desired to convert the natives who had helped him on his journey to Christianity. But in the end, Cabeza de Vaca would wrangle the job of governor of Rio de la Plata in South America in 1540. The colony consists of parts of present-day Argentina, Paraguay, and Uruguay. The main city was Buenos Aires, although the governor at the time, Domingo Martinez de Arala, had recently moved his base of power to the inland city of Asuncion. Cabeza de Vaca's job was to find a route over the Andes Mountains. The goal was to create easier access to the valuable gold and silver mines of Peru. Cabeza de Vaca would land in South America in March of 1541 and head overland to Asuncion. He would reach the city a year later in March of 1542. To find a route over the Andes Mountains, Cabeza de Vaca sent Martinez de Arala up the Paraguay with three brigantines. In January 1543, Martinez de Arala would set up an advance base on the river called Puerto de los Reyes. He would not go much further when the jungles became too thick, and he returned to Asuncion and reported his findings to Cabeza de Vaca. So, next would be Cabeza de Vaca's turn to head up the Paraguay River. He would lead a force of four hundred Spanish soldiers and eight hundred Indian allies there were 20 brigantines and over a 100 canoes. The journey, however, would be a difficult one. Although he had made peace with many of the native tribes, there were some that remained hostile toward him and his men, and the constant warfare drained the morale of his troops. The expedition would reach Puerto de los Reyes and continue pushing west, but like the smaller force led by Martinez de Arala the previous year, Cabeza de Vaca would find the jungles daunting. His force was large, probably too large, and acquiring food to feed them was almost impossible. Provisions began to run low, and sickness and hunger took their toll on the Europeans. Hacking through a jungle was not an easy task, and everyday progress got slower and slower. Not far past Puerto de las Reyes, Cabeza de Baca would eventually halt the advance and trek back to Asunción, defeated by the affair. But when Cabeza de Baca reached Asunción in April 1544, he found a hostile environment waiting for him. It seems that the policies instituted by Cabeza de Vaca were entirely too sympathetic toward the indigenous peoples. The settlers of the region saw the natives as slave labor, mere savages. Thus, the elite landowners, led by Martinez de Arala, plotted against Cabeza de Vaca and his policies. It would not take long, but Martinez de Arala would arrest Cabeza de Vaca, charging him with mismanaging the colony. His expedition, after all, had been a failure, and Buenos Aires, the colony's key part, was struggling to attract settlers. And ridding the colony of Cabeza de Vaca would also rid it of his native-friendly policies that the rich Spanish landowners despised. I have read that there was some sentiment to execute Cabeza de Vaca, but no one wanted to do such a thing. He was a famous man, after all, and in favor with King Charles. Instead, he was sent back to Spain in 1545 to stand trial. In Spain, Cabeza de Vaca would be brought before the Council of the Indies, the governing body of the Spanish crown that ran the colonies in the New World. He was found guilty of 32 charges, including mismanagement of the colony and usurping power, and sentenced to five years in a penal colony in Africa. It would take years and a series of appeals, but in 1552, the penalty was commuted, perhaps by King Charles himself. At this point, Cabeza de Vaca would be done as a public figure, politician, and adventurer, In 1555, he would pen an expanded version of La Relation, this time detailing his time in Florida with the Narvaez expedition. It would be called Naufragios, translated as shipwrecked. Otherwise, little is known about his final years. One source indicates he died poor, another said he was granted a pension by the king. There just really isn't anything definitive. Even the date of his death is disputed. As I have seen several years listed, anywhere from 1556 to 1559, If that's the case, then Cabeza de Vaca would have been about 65 to 70 years old when he passed. I find it a bit ironic that the man who had endured far more horrors than most explorers would actually live a long life and die a natural death, instead of being killed in some distant land by sickness or disaster or the local natives. Good for Alvar Nunez. I want to add that Cabeza de Vaca had married, around 1520, to a woman named Maria Marmaleo. There's not much written about her or their marriage, and we do not know when she died or if the couple had any children. So, in wrapping up, I just have a few final things to say about Alvar Núñez' Cabeza de Vaca. First, I don't know if there's a more extraordinary tale of survival than Cabeza de Vaca's. As I said in part one, it wasn't really a journey of discovery, but of survival. But it really turned into both. He was a soldier, a merchant, a botanist, a historian, an ethnologist, and in many ways a humanitarian, advocating for the people he lived amongst for more than eight years. Cabeza de Vaca's La Relacion was an amazing piece of work. Some have said that it is the first contribution to Chicano literature, and it's recognized as the first known written description of the American Southwest. Cabeza de Vaca recorded not just his travels, but the world around him. The detail he provides and his keen observations give us a historical record that is sorely missing in so many parts of the world. So, that is the life of Álvar Núñez Cabeza de Baca, a man who turned a catastrophe into one of the most amazing stories of survival and exploration in history. I hope you enjoyed our tale. As always, I would encourage you to go over to iTunes or wherever you get your podcast feed and leave a review of Explorers. A good word from you, our listeners, is the best way to help promote the podcast. Thank you everyone for your support. We will see you next time. Hello, my name is Matt